When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, and I'm delighted to say that joining me for The Bigger Picture today is Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Um, Tim, we're going to talk about some different topics, but uh, clearly one of the biggest at the moment is is who's going to actually lead the Conservative Party and, of course, immediately become Prime Minister. Um, mm-hmm. So how are we going to tackle this? Well, well most people uh, who are members of uh, political parties and, and really focusing on uh, the Conservative Party and Labour Party, most of their memberships tend to be more radical um, and more strident uh, and and in their own heads carry higher levels of certitude uh, <laughs> than, than, than the people who are often representing them in Parliament. Mm. And um, uh, so on that basis, uh, give, and, and that partly explains how, you know, the, the Labour leadership, for example, um, um, beca- you know, Jeremy Corbyn came to power in 2015 as a Labour leader because lots of the membership got the right to vote and they tended to vote for mm. someone who's more stridently left-wing. Well, on this basis, um, it also partly explains why Boris Johnson got the Tory party leadership and why it's likely, I think, that Liz Truss will get um, the Conservative Party leadership, providing there are no horrendous gaffes mm. or I think the membership will be more inclined to her sort of strident brand. Of course, one of the really interesting things uh, about politics in recent years, partly because of COVID, partly because of um, the the new Labour leadership under Keir Starmer and indeed Boris Johnson's rather peculiar way, I have to say, of running number 10, um, which was a lot less focused um, than when he was Mm. London mayor. One of the really peculiar things about these two great parties is they seem somewhat loath to almost detail um, their programme, to really tell us in detail what they want to do. That's particularly awkward when you're actually in government, but I couldn't tell you uh, really what the Conservatives were about. power. They talked about being the party of low taxes and small government, but the tax burden went up under them. They claim to manage the economy well, but inflation is at an extraordinary high level. And and then when you talk to people in, in Labour opposition, they um they they say, well, yes, we're working on our program. We'll let you know closer to the election. Yes, it does seem quite extraordinary. Which I suppose is one reason why you know Hustings and you know a vote for leadership of the party is interesting because they've got to say something but it, it, it appears from reading quite a few articles that many members are already crossed that the candidates that they might have wanted to vote for have have been effectively jettisoned by mps who are rather more cautious and less willing to have you know radical leaders than the membership might be it that, does seem a very odd system that, that I, I agree with you but um it is what it is and it's over and above our pay grade 
Um, so, <laughs> so many things are, Tim. Things are. So it's it, sort of on that basis that I was um, I was intrigued to read an article by Dan Hannan, who's a former mm. Conservative MEP, um, obviously in the European Parliament, but now a member of the House of Lords, and an occasional writer in The Telegraph. He actually wrote um, um, the 11 things that he would do um, or that he would advise the new Tory leader to do uh, to win the next election. And I thought it was unusual in that, you know, it's a very pithy and direct article and he just says it like he thinks it should be. Mm. So here are the 11, I thought they're interesting. Halt price rises, you know, for him, inflation is a monetary phenomena and the Bank of England should stop printing money. Um, and they, I guess he would argue actually that you should push up um, yeah, the price of money, interest rates, and, and avert what could be a possible mm. sterling crisis. He believes in cutting VAT. Uh, he thinks you should have a more balanced approach to net zero, um, and that you shouldn't indulge, as he puts it, in grandstanding with very, very strident but impractical proposals. So I think he would probably favour a mixture of renewables, but nuclear, hydrogen, uh, and and taper them in over time. He absolutely believes in cancelling new taxes, like you know the increase on national insurance. Um, he believes that there is always room in government to reduce spending, not by taking money away from necessarily frontline services, but by efficiency. And he makes the point that if the NHS was run well, then actually costs should be reducing as new technology is brought to bear. Saw a horrendous stat the other day, more managers now than there are beds. Well, there we are. I mean, it, 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 you know, that, so, it, you know, there's there's one one patient per bed. There are now more managers than there are patients being looked after at any one time. I and mean, it's ridiculous. Absolutely. He then says, you know, don't get hung up on the issue of the woke. I think he probably is naturally a more sort of liberal libertarian conservative mm. so he, he would i think believe in classic liberal presumably classic liberal yeah. exactly so um uh, that's him sort of moving away from the slightly more orthodox and and head-banging right he absolutely believes 0.7 in building more houses he thinks that's vital um for young people to be able to get their feet on the on on the first rung of the ladder he believes i think in suspending tariffs I think Dan Hannan is very much in the tradition uh, of unilateral free trade. Um, and of course, that goes back to Adam Smith. It goes back to Cobden and Bright and the 19th century. Basically, yes. spend tariffs. I, I, well, especially as these new steel tariffs are supposed to be just to, to placate three red wall MPs. I mean, it's ludicrous. Every member of the cabinet should be given Hazlitt's economic in one lesson. I used to think the chapters on tariffs were redundant because who in their right mind these days would actually be in favour of tariffs? It's absolutely ludicrous. But even if, you know, in the short term, um, uh, a few people on your side may appear to suffer um, and other people might not suspend their tariffs, the truth is that the efficiencies, the innovation, mm. uh, the refreshment that often comes from unilateral uh, free trade is often has really beneficial examples. One example of that is um, I actually once met, met the New Zealand Labour Minister who had, for, for, for all kinds of governmental and monetary woes, had to abolish farming subsidies there. And of course, 
this led to a lot of innovation. It led to new New Zealand wineries and the export of wine and lots of new efficiencies. And actually, they benefited and profited massively. Point nine. Yes, yes. Scrap an awful lot of reg uh, regulations, really deregulate um, and pivot away from regulation, which tends to be top-down and government and politically led, to more bottom-up, consumer-focused standards. So that's interesting. Regulation, scrapping regulation, does not necessarily mean um, that, that you're undermining standards, providing standards are born, but they are uh, consumer-born and consumer-led. Yes. That's interesting. Um, restore our sovereignty? Well, that's good. And then... Um, reform the civil service. Um, <laughs> Good luck uh, with that, yes. And, and for him, the way into that is um, a lot of human rights legislation, which is rooted in, um, you know, in, in the philosophy of law, you have negative rights versus positive rights. We've had a lot of positive rights, both in uh, America and in Britain, really since the 1920s and 30s. Um, he thinks, I think, in the older common law tradition of, of, of negative rights, um, um, but you know, what's interesting about this, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, is irrelevant. What's interesting is that he's actually putting some flesh on the bones of fairly loose rhetoric. Yes. And, and I would also say that this is very important for the Labour Party to do as well, um, because it takes time for people to understand what a great political party is about and what are they offering. You can't simply do that in the last two or three weeks of a general election, because often if you come out with new ideas that res resonate with the electorate, right at the last moment, they think you're just having them on, you're having a, a playing a game and you don't really mean it. Tony Blair was an absolute genius in 1994, five and six, in very gently laying out his stand with a very, very powerful worldview. And so when we went into 97, and when the election was looming, people felt they knew and they understood him. And if you remember those famous wor words, what matters, what works. If he thought the Conservatives had a good idea, he simply repackaged yes. it and stole it. But at the moment, hand on heart, um, I think it's very difficult to know what our two great political parties, quite frankly, stand for. It's slightly depressing. I mean, I, I've always found Daniel Hannan's uh, writings interesting. I mean, he even bought a, a book of his quite a, some time ago. I mean, always very interesting, always challenging, and always, I suppose, coming up with ideas that, that used to be generally acknowledged. I mean, most people understood that tariffs were actually bad. They might help one industry in the short term, but ultimately it means higher prices and less efficiency, which the country as a whole is going to suffer. You gave the example of of New Zealand there and 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 farming, um, I I find it a great. I mean, one one wouldn't normally look to the House of Lords necessarily for great innovative ideas, but I can't help feeling that whoever does become prime minister, I wouldn't be at all upset if Lord Frost and um, Baron Hannon were part of a cabinet. Well, there you are. You put your you put your cards very firmly on that table. I mean, I, I guess you could say. Well, just mainly Tim, because they, in all their writings recently, they've been coming up with new ideas and challenging, which one or two of the Conservative Party perspective leaders did, but not perhaps the two who ended up being the the final two. Indeed, but I mean, I would add the caveat, of course, if you have been in the European Parliament and then you get placed in the House of Lords, like. Dan Hannan is, or mm. if you've been an advisor and a negotiator like Lord Frost, 
you haven't necessarily therefore been on the front line of British politics in the House of Commons, and you certainly haven't had your mind focused on your patch, your constituency, and the electoral prejudices of it. And it's often uh, pol politicians get tied down in in those struggles. So what mm. I'm saying is that if, if you're coming from European Parliament or, or indeed you're coming from um, certainly the House of Lords, you often have, I think, more scope, more elbow room to say what you want to say and to be perhaps more radical mm. and 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 a more specific. It, it's a bit of a luxury to be there. Yes, that, what, I agree. But but it seems to me that the, the, the cabinet as a whole, the government as a whole, has been entirely lacking fresh ideas, reacting to whatever's happening with short-term measures that, in the end, I don't think convince the public. I mean, one gets the impression that the public as a whole now just think government isn't functioning properly. You, indeed, know, you look no, at you look at the airports, you look at immigration, you look at the health service, you look at inflation. I mean, the government is going to get blamed for absolutely everything, but it doesn't look like a competent government. Indeed, I mean, I just spent recent days. I, I've actually been in Ireland um, in in the Republic, travelling right the way round, and I've been talking to a lot of people. Um, and bumping into lots of people from other nationalities. And that's mm. been a real eye-opener because um, many of the problems we have here, um, they've got over there. High inflation, um, a very tight labour market, nearing full employment, mm. cannot get people to fill lots of jobs. Mm. You know, with COVID, for example, a lot of Eastern Central Europeans or people from further afield left these countries. Um, it, it, you know, the French health system is under huge pressure. So is the German, huge waiting lists. So often we get hung up and, and we say, this is a left-wing government there, a right-wing government there. But actually, often if we raise our gaze and gain altitude, these trends are international. And they are the result of things like uh, Vladimir Putin's um, war, his invasion of Ukraine. They are sort of the residual tail end of the backlogs that have occurred because of COVID. Lots of people during COVID decided, you know, um, um, actually I've done this job. I met someone in Ireland who'd been a cook. They'd been a, they'd been a chef for 10 years, a brilliant chef. But actually they decided during COVID, they no longer wanted to do it and want, and want to do the hours. So they and their partner have become sheep farmers and they love it. But you know, there's, there's not a shortage of sheep farmers in Ireland, but boy, is there a shortage of chefs. Yes, so yes. I know, Todd. I've met sheep farmers. I've met sheep farmers who've been doing most of their lives and they can't wait to do something else because they can't make a living. But maybe it's different in Ireland. Well, indeed. But these problems that we might blame on our government, rather yes. like they blame on their government, like, you know, just I'm sure that people in Spain are blaming their government, doesn't really matter the stripe or the colour of the government. Um, these, these trends are pretty much everywhere. Yes, true. But it would be perhaps nice to think that somebody in government understood what the problem was, and at least were trying to address them, rather than just looking entirely puzzled and scratching their head as if it was nothing to do with me, mate. Indeed, indeed. A good moment for us, perhaps, to take a pause, and we will change topic. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio.
this is Simon Rose in conversation with Tim Evans. Uh, we're looking at the bigger picture. We've been looking uh, at um, uh, Baron Hannon's uh, 11 things he'd like the Tories to do to win the next election, slightly optimistic, um, perhaps, even to think that the new Prime Minister will take any of them on board. We shall have to wait and see. Um, but you want to look now, I think, at, uh, at Labour and the posi position from their point of view. Yes, so um, if you go back to Tony Blair's time, um, what you realise, and, and hindsight is a wonderful thing, is that whereas Margaret Thatcher and the Conservatives and then John Major and the Conservatives were trusted in opening up British industry to more modern practices and, and really engaging more with the trends of global competition at the time, you know. So the Conservatives were trusted with the economy and they were trusted to... Um, privatise various things and, and open them up to new forms of private sector investment and, and know-how. Tony Blair was very, very successful um, at, at maintaining that economic trajectory, but dare I say it, starting to modernise and open, and open up the, 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 the human services, you know, in education, which was a big focus for him, free schools, academy schools, universities, student fees, um, a more business-like approach to lots of the human services. But what he also did was he invested very heavily um, in young people, huge targets to reduce poverty, which uh, with, with the young, which I think Labour did, they launched things like Sure Start. Um, and, uh, and also they put colossal sums of investment into the National Health Service. And under Tony Blair's leadership, they were successful in driving down waiting lists and waiting times uh, and making the NHS, from a, from a consumer point of view, a lot more responsive. So in, in its own terms, a lot of new Labour was very successful. As happens to all governments, we were talking about the Tories and COVID. Um, well, the... Twin Towers came along and the conflict with Afghanistan and Iraq. But, but in a sense, that was a slight sideshow to the domestic programme of the Blair government. Um, and people kept on voting uh, for Tony Blair and for New Labour because they realised he was pragmatic. He chimed sort of with uh, traditional Labour voters, as well as lots of floating voters in, in Middle England, and um, it was a progressive and inclusive agenda that seemed to work. Yeah. Then Labour fell into the trap in 2015 uh, under Jeremy Corbyn of, of sort of moving to, to the radical left. And of course, lots of middle of the road floating voters weren't necessarily excited or, or, or that agenda didn't resonate with them. The prospect of a lot more nationalisation, higher taxes, more state control, um, more, more central direction was something that clearly didn't work in 2017 and, and very clearly it didn't work in 2019. Now, Sir Keir Starmer has got the challenge, really, of finding out you know, what should Labour be about? What can the Labour Party be about? Britain is not the class-riven society that it was with the great heavy industries of steel and shipping and mining 100 years ago. You know, it's increasingly a high-tech and innovative economy 
um, where there's a lot, you know, a lot of innovation, there's STEM subjects. How can labor build bridges with that and resonate? So whereas under labor, it was all about education, 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 and opening up the human services, Starmer, if he becomes prime minister, is going to inherit a heavily indebted country, a public sector that isn't responsive, whether it's uh, police crime clear-up rates or ambulances or NHS waiting lists, things are, are, are not going well. So what on earth can he do? And what he is clearly doing, um, and there isn't a lot of detail, uh, that will have to come. But what he is doing is he, he's trying behind the scenes to pull a very pro-growth agenda together. Now, there isn't much flesh on the bones, but I think it's becoming clear that the Labour are going to want to say, vote for us. You won't get one or two percent growth per year. We're going to go for a really zippy, high growth economy, um, uh, you know, of two, three, four percent a year. Yes. One well, we... remembers, of course, Gordon Brown saying that he'd managed to abolish boom and bust. So there's a degree of sceptics all very well saying go for growth but i mean there isn't much flesh on these bones but plans for a new industrial strategy council slightly chill my bones because we've heard this again and again and when has it ever worked government trying to decide where the growth should be what's going to work it, it doesn't well, it doesn't it, work usually it, does it? it it depends what you mean by a new industrial strategy mm. i mean for example John Redwood on the conservative side used to talk about a property owning democracy. Tony Blair caught, talked about a stakeholder society. Mm. Now the trick was the left at the time thought that a stakeholder society was going to be some traditional state socialist program. When Tony Blair became prime minister, it actually looked rather like John Redwood's property owning democracy. So you know, the, the right will use the word choice. The mm. left will use the word diversity. A philosopher will say, well, how can you have diversity without choice or a choice without <laughs> Now, so the serious point is, if you hear that phrase, new industrial strategy, and you think of, I don't know, the 1970s and that old tripartite world of the CBI and the trade unions and government sitting around the table together, sort of planning the new Morris Marina at British Labour, yes. whatever ghastliness it was at the time, then yes, you might have a point, but you might have a new industrial strategy, dare I say it, that is pro-growth and actually is something rather akin to Lee Kong use the industrial strategy in Singapore in the 60s and 70s, which simply put was a framework for, we need a new vision, we've got to go for high growth, and a lot of our strategy should be to not meddle and not centrally direct and not plan and not repeat the disasters of the past. The advantage for, C for Sikir Starmer of doing that, of course, and, and you've nailed it on the head, if he really went into the next election with that, um, and said the, the the Labour Party of the 21st century wants to turn these in islands into a high growth kind of Singapore for the 21st century. Boy, would that cause problems for the Tory Party? <laughs> yes, it's not. So yes. my question is: what... Yes, the Conservatives keep moving to the left to try and um, uh, outflank the Labour Party. The Labour Party trying to move further to the right to outflank the Conservative Party. It's it's getting quite intriguing, Tim. Well, well, and the point is, the Labour Party had previous on that. Yeah. It was called Tony Blair, and it was yep. called three big election victories. Yes, extraordinary. But he is, as you say, he is going to have to 
to flesh it out. But to some extent, I mean, one of the problems with democracy is, you know, potential leaders can talk about, oh, we're the party of growth. The politician who actually is open and says, look, there are problems, they've got to be solved. As soon as you start trying to explain that, I think voters turn off. They, is- it's not only that politicians want everything, want everything to happen instantly, but you sort of feel voters do as well. I, d- I disagree with that. Okay. But what you've just said is that as soon as you say what matters is what works, voters get turned off. And I think it's exactly that sort of pragmatism that did win Labour mm. three really good election victories under Tony Blair. And if, um, if Sir Keir Starmer, I mean, let's be blunt, if Sir Keir Starmer can turn the Labour Party into a 21st century uh, winning machine that updates, refreshes and resembles the sort of victories that Tony Blair was able to deliver the Labour Party and the Labour movement, well, I think that will be called a success story yes. and it will wrong foot the Conservatives um, and it will make for much more interesting days. Yes. I was intrigued and one of the other things he mentioned was that he, he, he wants manufacturer of items such as wind turbines generating power in the North of England, not to be outsourced to countries such as China. But of course, both, both main parties now um, having um, uh, uh, agreed with the agenda for the rush for, um, uh, you know, uh, getting rid of a dirty industry. Of course, one of the problems is that we do, we do have to outsource such things to, uh, uh, to China because we can't actually manufacture the steel in this country anymore indeed, um, indeed. It, it, it's really difficult but but i only mentioned that because i think our final topic is going to be china which currently of course is you know practically the manufacturing capital of the of the world because you want to talk about china and the, and the demographic time bomb that it's facing indeed and uh, i've mentioned this before um uh, with you but it, it it very rarely appears uh in the uk press or media or permeates popular consciousness but there was a piece by Paul Morland recently I think it was a comment piece in the Telegraph and it's really really important um China is facing a demographic time bomb and it's enormous and their population is going to shrink by several hundred million people and we should not therefore fall into the trap which perhaps to an extent we did in my childhood you know when i was a a boy in the late 60s and early 70s uh, we had this extraordinary miracle um not only the economic miracle in germany but but we had this economic miracle in japan where you know the japanese were producing motor cars motorcycles and televisions and then later the walkman and 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 Mm and you know all, all, all the, the technology and somehow I think we, we got caught up with the view that the that Japanese growth was so great they were just going to go on and on and on yes but then Japan hit an enormous uh, economic wall and, and has really had 20 years or more of, of woes the writing in some ways is on the wall for China their population is peaking it's going to reduce and um and and as Xi Jinping and the Communist Party in this phase become more autocratic um, uh, and, and more sm- small C conservative, um, then I think there are going to be questions about uh, questions of governance about who really wants to trade with them, who wants to align themselves with them, and 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 you know will there be stability there? 
China really relies on four, five, six, seven percent growth per year. It's that that has kept the Communist Party in power. But once you start to have a declining population, um, and and therefore you're by definition starting to strip out one of the most important drivers of growth. Once you start to lose, you know, uh, have less young people. Yes. Um, and, and a higher burden that comes with health costs for the older population and need for longer term care, then 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 it becomes a challenge. But you have other places that that um, where you know there is there, there is potential for enormous growth. The Indian population will go on growing. They're going to go on growing for most of this century, and 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 India is going to have a population um, within 40, 50 years that is much larger than China. Um, interestingly, uh, it, these things also drive local economies. Within the United Kingdom, um, most of the United Kingdom is aging, um, but we just saw recently the arrival of the Commonwealth Games and what a marvelous opening ceremony it was. Um, Birmingham ha has 50% of the population in Birmingham is under the age of 25. No aging population in Birmingham, which is quite useful. Yeah, I didn't know that. That great manufacturing hub of the United Kingdom. Yes. But this is not just a, you know, a challenge nationally for China um, and, and huge opportunities for India. Again, Africa uh, has a burgeoning population, lots of young talent coming through, a rising middle class. Lots, I think, of power will move indeed to the east, but a lot of it will go uh, south as well to um, Africa this century, and it will go over to India and to other parts of Southeast Asia, but closer to home. I think Birmingham really is one of the most exciting cities um, because it has such a young and vibrant population. Mm -hmm. Whereas so many parts, dare I say it, of the United Kingdom, um, as that boomer generation of which you and I are part of, as we feed through and we become older and probably more small C conservative, well, this can have uh, an adverse impact. Sure, we've got experience, but um, we're not going to be at the vanguard of of, of latest musical trends, or we're not necessarily in our dotage going to be keeping up as the great drivers of technology. So demographics really, really interest me. I find them fascinating, both within countries, uh, but yes. also countries and regions of the world. Yes, and not something by and large that politicians can control, although China obviously has attempted to in the in the past. Tim, fascinating as ever. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to me. It's uh, Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim will be talking to me again, I hope, in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.